true atonement is not a realization of wretchedness. The Hebrew for repentance is teshuvah, return to the Almighty. As Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik puts it, repentance is not remorse or acknowledgement and does not depend upon depression or a sense of despair. Repentance is return, restoration. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 140, The Perfect Crime and the Nature of Repentance. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. Some years ago, a law professor by the name of Brian Kalt published an article titled The Perfect Crime, in which he pointed out that a combination of constitutional law and federal regulation ended up creating a zone of technical unenforceability of law in the United States. One region of this great country where a person could commit a crime and not be prosecuted. Called asked us to imagine someone who is in the portion of Yellowstone Park that is in the state of Idaho, who commits crimes there. Quote, You are arrested, arraigned in the park, and bound over for trial in Cheyenne, Wyoming, before a jury drawn from the Cheyenne area. But Article 3, Section 2, plainly requires that the trial be held in Idaho, the state in which the crime was committed. Perhaps if you fuss convincingly enough about it, the case would be sent to Idaho. But the Sixth Amendment then requires that the jury be from the state, Idaho, and the district, Wyoming, in which the crime was committed. In other words, the jury would have to be drawn from the Idaho portion of Yellowstone National Park, which, according to the 2000 census, has a population of precisely zero. The Constitution entitles you to a jury trial and an impartial jury of inhabitants of the state and district where the crime was committed, end quote. And therefore, called further argues, as long as you insist on your rights and refuse to be tried elsewhere, it will be impossible to prosecute you. This seemingly obscure legal question provides us with a useful metaphor for the nature of sin as well as Isaiah's message of hope and return. Our next chapter in Isaiah presents us with the portion that for many Jewish communities is the Haftarah, the prophetic reading, on the afternoon of communal fast days. We will carefully consider just three verses that begin the Haftarah, in which the nature of sin and repentance are exquisitely described. The first is chapter 55, verse 6. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. What does that mean? Seek God, find God when he is near. One possibility, as the rabbis explain, is that the prophet refers to a time of year, such as the High Holy Days, when God's presence is particularly palpable. But another way of understanding this is that the essence of sin is ignoring God's omnipresence. And the right response to this failure is to become exquisitely aware of the divine and his presence in your life. As I explained in my presentation about Yom Kippur in the Tikva Sacred Time series, this is the reason why confession to God, or in Hebrew, vidui, is so central to the halachic repentance process. In Jewish law, it is not enough to regret past actions. We must stand in the presence of the Almighty and speak to Him about our past actions. Thus, the centerpiece of every prayer on Yom Kippur is confession. The ritual may appear puzzling, for if God is all-knowing, all-seeing, all-hearing, if He saw our sin just as surely as He is now watching us confess, of what use is our information? Why do we need to tell God we have committed such and such a sin? Why is that necessary when we repent before our omniscient, omnipresent God? But in truth, the ritual is meant to teach us something that relates to the essence of Jewish belief from the beginning. As Rabbi ben Nun has pointed out, ancient pagan cultures believed in territorial gods whose power extended only to their respective countries. In contrast, Abraham obeyed the God who addressed him in Mesopotamia and who told him to travel to another part of the continent, assuring Abraham 
that he, God, would be with Abraham wherever he went. Thus, Abraham's first covenantal action declared that there is no place on earth devoid of God's presence and providence. And it is this realization that confession is meant to provoke in us. Every sin, if you will, is an attempt to create in our own lives a zone of lawlessness. We temporarily illustrate our own wrong belief that we have created a district in our lives where the Almighty will not enforce His law. But of course, in truth, we cannot do this. And therefore, in standing before God and confessing to particular sins, the words we use are al-chet shechatanu lefanecha, I confess this particular sin that I did God before you, meaning I acknowledge that though I acted as if you were not there, I recognize now that you were. There is a joke I saw online about children in a religious school in a lunchroom, and as they come to a bowl of apples with their trays, a sign has been put up that says, take only one, God is watching. They then go from the apple bowl to the cookie tray, and one student says to the other, take as many cookies as you want, God's watching the apples. The source of all of our sins is our insensitivity to the presence of God. And so it does not suffice that we regret what we did. We must confess to God personally, facing him as to a friend, confessing to him as to a comrade, personally affirming his omnipresence, conversing with the divine being who is there. Thus, Isaiah's words, seek God where he is to be found, meaning right before us in our own lives. Linguistically, the Hebrew word for sin, avera, is, I think, linked to the verb la'avor, to cross over, which means that in sinning, we enter a realm of our lives where we think we are creating a zone, the likes of which Brian Call describes. To sin is to gerrymander the divine, gerrymander Judaism out of our daily experience. That is why, in repentance, we confess to God personally, recognizing his presence everywhere. The corollary of this is that true atonement is not a realization of wretchedness. The Hebrew for repentance is teshuvah, return to the Almighty. As Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik puts it, quote, repentance is not remorse or acknowledgement and does not depend upon depression or a sense of despair. Repentance is return, restoration, end quote. But external recognition of our sins, acknowledgement of our sins through confession is not enough. This must go hand in hand with something internal with a commitment to change. Our confession must reflect genuine remorse and cannot be merely performative. Isaiah thus gives us the next verse, chapter 55, verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Note the phrases that go hand in hand in Isaiah's words. The wicked should forsake his ways, yazov rashadarko, this refers to external action. And their unrighteous man should abandon his thoughts. This is internal. Changing one's ways and changing oneself within. Failing these steps, confession accomplishes nothing. If there is a piece of literature that expresses this, it is a soliloquy in Hamlet, but not the one that everyone knows. Indeed, Abraham Lincoln, in a letter to Shakespearean actor James Hackett, had argued that the soliloquy of which I speak was better than the well-known to be or not to be. The soliloquy that we will look at is spoken by Hamlet's uncle Claudius, who had murdered his brother, Hamlet's father. Claudius in this scene is in the chapel, confessing his sin, while realizing that he's not really resolving to abandon what brought about his offense, 
and is not seeking to actually change his character. Claudius says, O my offense is rank, it smells to heaven. It hath the primal eldest curse upon it. A brother's murder, pray can I not, though inclination be as sharp as will. My stronger guilt defeats my strong intent. And like a man to double business bound, I stand in pause where I shall first begin, in both neglect. What if this cursed hand were thicker than itself with brother's blood? Is there not rain enough in the sweet heavens to wash it white as snow? Claudius here refers to his crime, fratricide, by referencing the Torah, saying it hath the primal eldest curse upon it, a brother's murder. This is a reference to Cain, whose homicide of Abel brought punishment, exile. And Claudius understands that he faces similar punishment at the hands of God. But as he does so, Claudius also realizes that his act of contrition, his teshuvah, if you will, is meaningless. Because as he put it, though inclination be as sharp as will, my stronger guilt defeats my strong intent. And like a man to double business bound, I stand in pause where I shall first begin and both neglect. Meaning, on the one hand, he seeks to repent, but he cannot truly do so because he is, as he says, to double business bound. Meaning, and this is as many understand it, that part of him seeks repentance. But he also wishes to continue to enjoy all that he has achieved through his fratricide. Or as he further adds, But oh, what form of prayer can serve my turn? Forgive me my foul murder. That cannot be, since I am still possessed of those effects for which I did the murder, my crown, my own ambition, and my queen. May one be pardoned and retain the offense? Without true commitment to change, an external expression of that commitment in one's life, genuine repentance is impossible. And thus Claudius concludes with an incredible turn of phrase about his confession. My words fly up, my thoughts remain below. Words without thoughts never to heaven go. What this means is that confession without internal commitment is words without thought. It is a rote ritual. Teshuvah is transformation of ourselves and return to God. But that requires external change and internal commitment. Or, as Isaiah puts it, let the wicked man depart from his ways and a man of misdeeds, his original thoughts. This is the path of repentance. But how, ladies and gentlemen, can one atone and repent for something that has already occurred? How can one change the past? This is a question that led Spinoza in his ethics to argue that repentance is actually impossible. Spinoza insists that, quote, repentance is not a virtue or does not arise from reason, end quote. But to this, Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik responded, that Judaism, through its relationship with God, approaches the past differently than Spinoza does, approaches time differently than Spinoza does. Similarly, C.S. Lewis once described how he had once been asked how God attended to many millions of people addressing him at the same time. And Lewis replied that, quote, almost certainly God is not in time. His life doesn't consist of moments following one another. If a million people are praying to him at 10.30 tonight, he hasn't got to listen to them all in that one little snippet which we call 10.30. 10.30 and every other moment, from the beginning to the end of the world, is always the present for him. And Lewis then adds, quote, If you picture time as a straight line along which we have to travel, then you must picture God as the whole page on which the line is drawn. We come to the parts of the line one by one. We have to leave A behind before we get to B and cannot reach C until we leave B behind. God, from above or outside or all round, contains the whole line and sees it all. End quote. We're now able to understand, perhaps, ladies and gentlemen, the final verse in Isaiah that we study today. 
How can repentance work? Chapter 55, verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. Meaning God is not like us, and that is why he can allow repentance to work. And here the thesis gets deeper. If God is at the heart of the biblical covenantal relationship, then because God is beyond human time, our covenantal connection can extend across time as well. Rabbi Soloveitchik, in describing our disagreement with Spinoza, is essentially saying that Judaism's notion of repentance relates to its belief that in a spiritual sense, impacting time, changing it, is indeed possible. And as Rabbi Soloveitchik's grandson, Rabbi Meir Tversky, has noted, there are interesting analogies between this and relativity theory in physics. When Einstein first became famous, and everyone was talking about relativity and the speed of light, the humor magazine Punch once featured the following famous limerick. There was a young lady named Bright, whose speed was far faster than light. She set out one day in a relative way and returned on the previous night. For Judaism, we can impact the past, atone for it, and thereby embrace the Almighty in the present, return to the Almighty in our own lives. This, then, is Isaiah's succinct summation of repentance. It is not a coming to terms with inherent human sinfulness. Rather, it is a glorious act of embracing the Almighty. We, in our own lives, have the opportunity to fix our flaws, to create, if you will, a district for the divine in our own world, and raise ourselves to new heights, to spiritually impact through repentance the space-time continuum itself. I believe. Brian Colt later reflected that despite the popular interest in his article, the one thing that never happened was the government actually fixing the flaw that he had found in the law. The good news, ladies and gentlemen, is that we ourselves can undo the lawless zones in our own lives and recognize repentance in the Bible as the extraordinary idea that it always has been and become thereby the best version of ourselves. This is Mayor Soloveitchik looking forward to learning together tomorrow. Signing off.